you make of these contemporary calls for California secession? It's not a large movement by any means, but at the same time, it seems to me that a second Trump presidency could push something like that to the forefront, to a bigger place in people's consciousness. Well, sure. What do you make of that? Sure, it could, but then if it becomes a sort of a semi-real movement, well, then we'll see where the titans of Silicon Valley, where they really see their interest line. I mean, do they want to be in the Republic of California? Will that suit mm. their business interests? Maybe, mm. you know, maybe not. A lot can change when things really start happening. Mm. If it's just people shooting off their mouths, right. I don't take it very seriously now. I, I don't take it at all seriously. But sometimes ideas that seem small and trivial grow and get worse. Hi. You're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mitch. In this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. Many of the guests are speakers that our school brings to campus. The point of our speaker series and the podcast is to host an intellectual exchange of divergent views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. The series invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices, which we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Richard Brookheiser. He is a senior editor at the National Review, a writer, a historian, and a biographer of many American founders, including Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. We discuss the remarkable beginning of his career as a published writer while still a teenager, his many experiences working with William F. Buckley, including some fun stories of Buckley's regular correspondence with Ronald Reagan, as well as the ironic role Buckley's television show Firing Line had in giving voice to the political left. We also discuss his experiences appearing on both The Colbert Report and The John Stewart Show, and how worried he is or isn't about the current polarization of American politics. I also ask him some silly hypothetical questions about presidents that you'll want to stick around for. Richard Brookheiser. So you had your first piece for the National Review published when you were 14. My 15th birthday. Oh, excuse me. 15. Much later. Much, much older. Much more Much more mature. Yeah, yeah. Much more mature. How is that even possible? How does one get something published at 15 years old? Well, it was a fluke, obviously. I have an older brother, six years older than I am. He was in college. I was a freshman in high school. I went to a public school called Aronquoit High, which is outside Rochester, New York. And in October of 1969, fall of my freshman year, college campuses across the country were scheduled to have a moratorium day. And this was organized by opponents of the Vietnam War. And students were supposed to cut classes and hear lectures about the Vietnam War and why it was happening and why it was bad and so on. Students at my high school decided that they would do the same thing. You know, I thought this was imitative out of place. I just wrote my brother a letter. I wrote him a letter every week. I wrote him a letter about this moratorium exercise and what the other students were doing and how I had publicly disagreed. I typed up these little leaflets to protest it, and I ran off copies. So so to make sure I understand the context, so there were high school students that you thought were imitating college students. Imitating their left-wing elders. I think you see quite a bit of this today. Well, it doesn't even require imitation. It goes on uh, automatically. So I This was new then. It was. So I wrote my brother this letter. He's off in college. And he writes back and he says, Rick, that was an interesting letter. That was fun. That was interesting. Then my father said, why don't you send that to National Review, which was a magazine we'd been subscribing to for half a year. 
and this was a journal of opinion. The editor was a man named William F. Buckley Jr., who was at the early peak of his career. And yeah, small figure, you know, almost nobody's heard of him. <laughs> well, he was huge then. He had a TV show that was on over 100 public TV stations. His column ran in hundreds of newspapers. He was a big deal. He was a considerable media figure. He was a public intellectual. And we read his magazine. So my father says, why don't you send that to National Review? He wasn't a journalist. No one in my family was journalists. We didn't know any journalists. No we knew nothing about this. So, this. so this was a lark. Well, not a lark. It was just a shot in the dark was what it mm. was. So I took the letter to my brother Bob and I took off Dear Bob and I tinkered with it a little bit and I sent it off. And then weeks passed, didn't hear anything, and I assumed that it had just been thrown in a wastebasket. And then I got a letter, I think it might have been as late as January, from the assistant managing editor who said, I've just cleaned off my desk. I've found your letter. I like it. The managing editor likes it. Bill Buckley likes it. We want to run it. That's how it got accepted. That's how it ran. And it turned out they ran it as a cover story, which they didn't tell me That's ahead amazing. of time it was going to be. Well, you know, part of it was like a talking dog from their point of view. Here's a 15-year-old who's <laughs> written this thing. Isn't this amazing? But I submitted a few more articles when I was in high school and college, and a couple of them got published. And then I was a summer intern between my junior and senior years in college, and then I went to work there after I graduated. As it turned out, it wasn't completely a fluke or it wasn't merely a fluke. I had the germs of something that became a career. And that must have been quite the validation on some level to have somebody as big as Bill Buckley and his editorial staff say your work is worth being published at such a young age. Oh, sure. It was huge. And it also becomes a bit of a problem because then you think, well, this will be the story of my life thereafter. And it doesn't unfold automatically. you got to work at it and you have to keep developing and developing yourself. But no, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was thrilling. I even got paid. I got a <laughs> check for $180. You would be lucky to get that $180 today for any piece published. You'd be lucky to be paid at all. Mm -hmm. But probably in the 90s, it would have been 10 times that. That's pretty good, I mean, especially for 15. So you grew up upstate New York, somewhere around where Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy, was set. Somewhere That's around? where my parents came from. Oh, I see. My father was from Fonda, New York. My mother was from Johnstown. An American Tragedy is set really right around those two towns. When I finally read Dreiser's novel, I realized I know every place in this book that mm -hmm. he's referencing. Well, it's somewhat based on real events. So yeah, I think there was a real crime. A, a was, couple of different. It was like a compilation of different right. crimes. So how do you think this growing up in upstate New York, because I don't necessarily have my head around the culture of upstate New York. I mean, well, it seems like I it has quite a few different things going on in it. How did it influence where you ultimately ended up? Well, I didn't grow up where my parents came oh. from. I grew up outside Rochester, New York, which is also upstate. But to me, Rochester was employees of Eastman Kodak, which was then a great big company. Xerox was also in Rochester. There was a company called Bausch & Lomb that did a lot of very precision machines. So those were the three big employers, and there were a lot of white-collar as well as blue-collar workers in Rochester and in the suburbs around Rochester. So I grew up in a post-war suburban life. 
sort of what leave it to beaver mythology. So there was some that fathers knows best. Yeah. That sort of existence wasn't alien to you. Right. I mean, the street I was on, it was a post-war development. Mm -hmm. All the men, they'd been in World War II. You know, they were the greatest generation and starting out on their careers. And uh, that was the life. And they worked and their wives were homemakers and mothers uh, for the most part. And kids went to school. And that, that was, the, was life. the life. Yeah. So your father started out a Democrat. Yes. And then later in life, he transitioned and became a Republican. And that this was somewhat of a big moment for him, if not the family. I don't know how big a moment it was. My parents, they were interested in politics, but it didn't consume them. And his partisan transition he made, he wasn't alone in making it. The end of the Roosevelt coalition, in a way, was the trajectory of my father and lots mm -hmm. of other people like him who started off as Democrats. I think my father did vote for Roosevelt in the 44 election, but he voted for Eisenhower, as so many people did, and then he voted for Nixon. So mm -hmm. by then, he'd become a Republican. My mother's parents owned a small store, so they were the storekeeping or shop-owning class or sector of the population, mm -hmm. and, and she grew up a Republican. My impression of their lives was that this wasn't that salient. It wasn't that important to them. And then in the 60s, it seemed like everything was falling apart and coming into your living room because it was on mm -hmm. television. You saw riots. You saw accounts of all this stuff. There was a riot in Rochester, New York. A, That's right. A so-called race riot. Four people died. Mm -hmm. The cops shot one person who died, and then three people died when a police helicopter crashed. Mm -hmm. So this was not Newark and, and Chicago this was, and this Watts. Was, uh, this was 63, 64. 64. 64. Okay. So this was one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. And there would be bigger and much deadlier ones later. But we had this one. And I remember this big section of town, it just was flat after it because it burned down. Burned and, to the ground. Yeah, and you thought you were in Kansas. I right. mean, there were a couple stone churches left, but it was just gone. And so these were seminal moments for him and for your family in terms of changing their minds. I mean, do you remember anything that tipped him off? It sounds like he really fit this kind of typical transition of the fall of the New Deal coalition and the rise of the silent majority or even the first stages of the culture war, if we want to call it that. But do you remember any particular moments? He worked for Eastman Kodak which was the biggest employer in Rochester and the oldest. Saul Alinsky came into Rochester and tried to lead or did lead protests against Eastman Kodak. Mm -hmm. you know, and I dimly remember this as a kid. And Kodak was like the flag in Rochester. And why is this happening? What's the matter? Kodak didn't have unions, but it paid people well. I mean, mm -hmm. that was one way they kept unions out. Right. Uh, that was an item. This riot certainly got people's attention. And then it was just everything that was happening in the outside world, which, again, as I said, was coming in through the television. On a very direct and personal scale, we started encountering William F. Buckley Jr. as a public intellectual. At first, it was through his TV show, Firing Line, which ran on PBS. My father bought one of his books. Then we subscribed to his magazine, National Review, every other week that offered explanations for all of this. So in your view, Buckley changed the world. Well, he changed a lot. And what he did was that he united certain forces and impulses. One of them was free market economics. One of them was anti-communism. And one of them, call it cultural conservatism. Mm -hmm. No, let's not tear down the pillars. 
is American society so corrupt and so awful as to deserve all this upheaval and all this rhetoric about how bad it is? No, it isn't. So these three movements or strains of thought or whatever, Bill united them in his person and in his magazine. He presented them in a form which was respectable and entertaining and compelling. It could not be dismissed as stupid or crazy or conspiratorial or racist. He made it something that could enter the mainstream political arena and present itself as an option. Over time, it became the major force within the Republican Party. But so what was the conservative movement, at least the face of it publicly? How was it different prior to Buckley? So, I mean, if Buckley managed to basically become the public face of fusionism as a term, some intellectual historians and political theorists even will use this free market libertarianism with traditional social values, aggressive Cold War strategy, Mm -hmm. and there's other elements too. But those are a good amount of description for now. If he was the face of that, what was it like prior? Well, now you're getting back before my conscious life. But as I've thought about it and read about it, there were individuals. There was Joe McCarthy, who was kind of an exploding meteorite in the early 50s, and that was anti-communism. And it wasn't even foreign policy so much as communists in our government. That was his thing. And he lived by it and he died by it. Ayn Rand, she sold a jillion copies of her novels. They still sell. They're still hugely popular. And that's a very direct, clear, some would say rigid vision, but it's Mm -hmm. about the economy and human freedom and how it's Mm -hmm. being stifled and suppressed. And this Mm -hmm. is terrible. There were individuals out there. There were forces out there. But politically, I think Bill would say, well, the Republican Party just decided to stop fighting the New Deal just to try and deal with it. And why do we have to do that? And wasn't one of the Republican Party slogans in the 50s, we want a party, not an echo? Uh, Right. That that, was Barry Goldwater, a choice, not an echo. A choice, not an echo, his campaign in 1964, which was crushed. I mean, he carried only six states. He got 40 percent of the vote. Republicans were wiped out in Congress. It was just a debacle. And yet 16 years after him, Ronald Reagan becomes president and gets reelected. And people joked at the time. They said, well, the rural vote of the election of 1964 has finally come in at Mm -hmm. last. One lesson that Bill learned and taught people, at least by example, is when you get your head handed to you, you don't have to quit. You can just keep going and try again, try it differently, try it better. So you see Bill Buckley as being part of the Goldwater Revolution that happened, or did you see these things as just part and parcel, or is there any kind of discrepancy between the two? He was very much part of it. I mean, his brother-in-law, Brent Bazell, ghosted one of Goldwater's books worked for Goldwater, wrote speeches for Goldwater. They were very tight. And then Bill himself met Ronald Reagan in the early 60s and kept that relationship up all through his presidency. There's a man named Al Felsenberg who just wrote a book about Bill Buckley and the most interesting chapters in that, it's about Bill Buckley and the presidents whose lives he intersected with. And the most interesting chapters describe his relationship with Reagan. It was very tight. And not just Bill and Reagan, but also Bill and Nancy Reagan, which is another way of having a relationship with Reagan. But they did correspond. Reagan picked his brains. 
bill, would offer advice, would offer assistance. Uh, How frequently? How much are we talking about? Oh, it sounds like this was just an ongoing thing. Like once a week, once a month? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, phone calls? I, are we talking about letters? Letters, sometimes yeah. phone calls. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the funny story is that there was a call to Bill's house in Stamford on a Sunday morning. Pat Buckley, Bill's wife, who had an imperious manner she could have, picks up the phone and the voice says, that's the president calling. She said, the president of what? <laughs> what was the next line? I, I, yeah, right. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm sure they got around to the president of what it actually was. But, you know, Pat didn't appreciate being woken up on Sunday morning even by the president. Uh, right. That's fantastic. So let's talk about firing line for a minute. Mm-hmm. A unique show, had a unique influence. Did you ever get to go on it yourself? I was on it a couple of times. I was on it once along with Murray Kempton, which means I hardly got to speak because he held forth. But that was fine because he was just very interesting and a lot of fun. I would be in the audience sometimes. The studio was on 23rd Street in New York City, and the offices of the magazine were on 35th Street. And both were just off Lexington Avenue, so it was an easy shot back and forth. Bill would schedule a couple tapings at once. He would clump them. I spent some episodes in the control room. A couple times I was a guest. Sometimes I'd be in the audience. But it was one of the perks at working at the magazine that you saw how this other project of Bill's got made and how it was done. And the production values were very simple. Bill had a chair, and then his guest had a chair. And if there were two guests, two chairs. But that was it. There was a little table with a glass of water, but no graphics, no film clips, Mm -hmm. nothing. Someone called it a filmed radio show. But that is an injustice to Bill (laughs) because Bill was very watchable. He was Uh made for television. He was very expressive. His face was. I mean, his his face was expressive. Even his forehead was very expressive from what I remember. His eyes. Mm -hmm. He had a way of widening his eyes Mm -hmm. when he wanted to make a joke or make a point. His body language was expressive. I mean, he kind of lounged around in his seat, but he had watchability. That's what movie stars have on the big screen, but Bill really had it for the small screen. So it wasn't at all like a filmed radio show. There was, he made it well, very a of, visual. A lot of television was basically a filmed radio show up until practically the mid-60s. I mean, there wasn't a lot of production. Right. One, one of the changes, John McLaughlin and the mm-hmm. McLaughlin Group, were the beginning of the change. And and McLaughlin's innovation was really to cast all his regulars, to turn them into figures, like Morton Kondracki and Fred Barnes would be kind of the moderate punching bags. Mm -hmm. And then Pat Buchanan and Bob Novak would play villains, you Mm -hmm. know, like villainous versions of themselves. They would ham it up, and McLaughlin encouraged that. That was a move. They were caricatures rather than people. They were seen as important only in that they represented a specific viewpoint rather than the viewpoint itself. And do you see Firing Line as being different to that? Well, I think so. I mean, Bill was certainly a performer, and he was also a fighter. But he also wanted his guests to say what they meant. The only point of victory for him was a victory over an idea. So he wanted you to reveal, to express, what is it you're about? What do you think? And why do you think this? And can you defend this? Is this right? Is that right? And so it was really a process of getting it out of the other person and simultaneously mixing it up. 
Later on, it just became more and more just the mixing it up. When you, you, know, when you mean later on in the show, or do you mean no, later, later on, on in, in history and in, in media, in yeah. the evolution of media? Right, right. You shared an anecdote. I think it's in your book, but you shared it earlier today about how someone came up to you and wanted to thank you because they felt like Firing Line, Buckley's show, was one of the only outlets that actually gave the left a voice, which is not necessarily even a backhanded compliment. I, I think if I'm getting the story correct, it was a genuine compliment. Genuine compliment. And so explain what this person meant. Well, what he meant was that Bill would have people of the left on, and when the show was an hour, they had an hour to say what they thought. People like Allen Ginsberg, I think Eldridge Cleaver was on, really left-wing voices and left-wing people, and they were being reported on by mainstream news outlets, but they didn't give them the microphone, certainly not for that long. And Bill did it because it made good television. You know, it was dramatic, but it was also, all right, what are these people saying? Let's hear what they say. Yeah, so there was no joy in defeating a straw man. No. He wanted to make sure that their ideas were fully articulated and then maybe slay them. Right, yes. But give them a full voice. Right. And so what do you think he would say of the way media has evolved today, as you were just kind of alluding to this transition? Yeah. If he were reborn, how would he do it? I think he would find some way, because he was a counterpuncher. If he were a boxer, that's the kind of boxer he would have been. So he would have found maybe some way to do that on social media, but the slugging for its own sake, that would have struck him as sort of like a Punch and Judy show, like, you know, little puppets beating each other up. Mm -hmm. What's the fun of that and what's interesting about that? I mean, without knowing him at all, my guess, this emphasis on intellectual dialogue was a very high priority for him. Well, right, because he thought, you know, ideas are important. Ideas have consequences. Wrong ones can have serious bad consequences. Right ones, the reverse. So you'd better understand what they are because they're out to get you. <laughs> they take on lives of their own and force of their own. So you better know what's going on. Well, so you've had some direct experience in the modern media machine. And I don't know if we would call it these back and forth debate shows, but you were on Colbert, if I'm not mistaken, three, maybe four times. Yeah. The, and, and you were on Jon Stewart once. A couple times, yeah. What was your impression? I mean, what was that like? Well, Jon Stewart had me on to talk about a book I'd done on James Madison. So that was just a very mm -hmm. straight-up talk because he's interested in American history. Mm -hmm. And it was serious. It was straight up. Uh, and did you get enough time to speak? I mean, compared to Firing Line, it was like six minutes. But still, I mean, I got to make a couple A of couple points. of different points. A couple yeah. of different points. My wife and I were on one segment that one of his auxiliary hosts did. And this was about couples who had political disagreements. But the thing about that, it was so scripted. I mean, the whole mm. thing was scripted, and we didn't have the script. That was the feeling that I had. We had been cast to represent a certain point of view, and fortunately, the point of view that we had, they liked. So we were not being sandbagged. So this is just bad production we were, maybe on their part? No, it was deliberate mm. production. That They had their notion of how the show was going to go. My wife and I, I'm conservative, my wife is liberal, mm. but we managed to live with that. And right. the show was to try and say this is the right way to go about it. And then the other couples mm -hmm. were not living with this so well. Uh, so they yeah. were being set up to be the goats. And we were being set up to you be exemplars. the good guard. Yes, yeah. yes. But it was all very scripted. And but odd. you say you didn't have the script. 
No, so, we, yeah, no, yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah, it. Yeah. It was we scripted in terms of the conclusion, but not yeah, in terms exactly. of what you were going to say. No, no, no. But the hostess, you know, she knew the direction she wanted mm-hmm. to take it. And then the Colbert things, they were fun. He was interviewing me and kind of teasing, but it was lighthearted. And then he had me do a very serious thing when Bill died. And that day, their producer called, and I said, look— I've known this man for decades. He was my friend. He was my mentor. I'm not going on to do funny stuff about him. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, this is uh, Stephen really admires him. This is going to be a straight mm-hmm. up segment. So I said, all right, fine. I'll go on and do that. And it was. Mm-hmm. So those were my experiences with that. I mean, not typical. You read of people going on and feeling that they were really set up and mm-hmm. edited and all this kind of stuff. Um, well, you're not given very much time. Going along with this, it must have been somewhat strange to have started out when you were almost a preteen, I guess a teenager technically. You see this person from afar, you learn about their ideas, you admire them, you publish something under them, then you actually go and work for them. And then when they pass, you end up becoming this go-to person for their life. This must have been quite the process. Yeah, you become the vessel of memory. You're right, it is sad, but that's how time goes on, and that's how life goes on, and we take each other's places. There must be some pressure, though, to represent somebody who you admired so well. I do my best. I wrote a book about our relationship, so I made that effort. And uh, Bill is doing pretty well for a dead person. I (laughs) I have to say that he had several posthumous books. I mean, his son, Chris, said he writes more when he's dead than a lot of people do when they're alive. He had several posthumous books. There were several books about him. He's going on. And my favorite book of his, I think it's his best book, he wrote two books about a week in his life. And the first one, which was called Cruising Speed, and he did this in like 1970, I think, 70 or 71. And he just decided, I lead this busy life. I'm doing a million things. I'm meeting all these people, you know, interviewing them. I know them all. Why don't I just sit down and write about a week of my life? Which he did. And it's a fascinating book. If you want to see the 70s, the early 70s, through the eye of a public intellectual, this is a great way to do it. I haven't heard of very many books like that. That is pretty unique. Um, Well, it it gives you the slice of life. It's like the books that capture Americans in 20s Paris or the Beats or the early mm -hmm. punks. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, okay, here is what it was like to live the Mm -hmm. life behind the headlines. Mm -hmm. I mean, the headlines are in there, but, but here's the daily stuff. Well, so you've lived through a lot of this transition, and obviously you can observe that many people are quite worried about the state of American politics right now. But having had as much experience both in media and in Washington, if I'm assuming some, but but you've had at least a good amount of experience there behind the scenes. How worried are you? The main thing that keeps me stable is the writing I've done on history, on American history, mostly on the founding era some, you know, up to the Civil War, it really has been worse. But I don't think we are yet at the level of the 1790s, right up Mm. to the War of 1812. So how were the 1790s worse, or at least as bad? People killed each other. People had duels and killed each other. Now, you weren't supposed to have a duel because you disagreed with someone politically. It was supposed to be an affront to your honor. Mm -hmm. But honor was very bound up in politics, so it often did intersect. 
Two signers of the Constitution were killed in duels. Everybody knows about Hamilton because of the musical, but there was another one, Richard Spate. One signer of the Declaration was killed in a duel. Jefferson put a man on the Supreme Court who'd killed someone in a duel. Brockles right. Livingston. You know, can you imagine, oh, mm-hmm. Mr. Kavanaugh, when did you kill that guy in a duel? And no one brought it up, mm-hmm. even though duels were always illegal. And mm. deaths and duels were considered murder under the laws. So it was almost extra legal activity. It, it was never prosecuted because no jury would convict. It would mm-hmm. be jury nullification because this is what gentlemen did. This is how gentlemen resolved their affairs of honor. That's pretty rough. And then Jefferson's party was really considering armed resistance at the end of the Adams administration and especially if the election of 1800 had been taken away Armed from resistance them. in what form? Well, if, say, the Federalists had passed an election law allowing an acting president if the House didn't pick a president, I think the governors of Pennsylvania and Virginia who were in Jefferson's party would have called out the state militia. You know, and I think it's part of Jefferson's greatness in his political skill that he kept his followers calm and that he just had enough confidence that the people were on their side and we're going to win this election. It's going to be all right Mm -hmm. that he spread some calm around him. A little later on in the War of 1812, the Federalist Party, most of it, much of it, they became secessionists, Mm -hmm. you know, New England secessionists. They wanted the United States to lose the war. A lot of them wanted New England to pull out. The man who drafted the Constitution, Governor Morris, you know, subject to one of my books. I love mm-hmm. this guy. But he just gave up. He said, well, all right, I wrote the Constitution. It hasn't worked. It hasn't, hasn't worked. worked. It hasn't, hasn't worked. worked. Got to start over. Right. I hope New England pulls out. I hope mm-hmm. New York joins them. People say this is civil war. Well, what of that? I lived through the American Revolution. We fought wars for liberty before. Let's do it again. This was the kind of like rabid talk Mm -hmm. that people were talking. Mm -hmm. And who knows if Andrew Jackson had not won the Battle of New Orleans, they might have gone through with that threat. Mm What do you make of these contemporary calls for California secession and things like this? It's not a large movement by any means. But at the same time, it seems to me that a second Trump presidency could push something like that to the forefront, to a bigger place in people's consciousness. Well, sure. What do you make of that? Sure, it could. But then if it becomes a sort of a semi-real movement, well, then we'll see where the titans of Silicon Valley, where they really see their interest line. Mm-hmm. I mean, do they want to be in the Republic of California? Well, that suit mm-hmm. their business interests? Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not. A lot can change when things really start happening. Mm-hmm. If it's just people shooting off their mouths, right. I don't take it very seriously now. I, I don't take it at all seriously. But sometimes ideas that seem small and trivial grow and get worse. Here we are on Constitution Day. What do you think is the legacy of the Constitution that people like that might not necessarily appreciate, those people who would be quite critical of it? And then certainly there is a a rise in the number of critics of our governmental structure. I mean, Francis Fukuyama just had a book not too long ago that basically said that the system itself is quite out of date to deal with contemporary problems. Fukuyama is hardly considered a crazy radical of any kind. Well, I guess history hasn't ended then. The Constitution is still around. It lasted through something a lot worse than this, which was the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Even though 11 states left or thought they left, Lincoln never recognized that they had left. 
That's pretty serious. Mm. But the country carried on. Elections Mm. were held. Relations were maintained with foreign powers. And we got over that. And that's a hell of a lot more serious than anything we're seeing now. But a lot of bloodshed to resolve that, though, right? Oh, well, they'd raised the figure. It used to be Mm. 620,000. I met Mm. the historian who said, no, it's 750,000. He's a historical demographer, and that's how he did it. You know, he Mm -hmm. looked at the census of 1860 Mm -hmm. and the census of 1870, and he said, no, we're we're missing some more people here. Staggering figures. Yeah, oh, today that would be 7.5 million people because it was 33 Mm. million people, and now we're 330, so multiply it by 10. That's uh, uh, just mind-boggling, mind mind-boggling figure. One of the wisest things about the Constitution I ever read was by the historian Forrest MacDonald, who, who died a few years ago, and he said the Constitution actually has give in it. It isn't chiseled in stone that the presidency is this and always and only does that, and the Congress the same and the Supreme Court the same. They're jostling can occur and it does occur. Mm-hmm. And he said that's good. I mean, that means that it can take a little stress. It's like a building in a storm. Mm-hmm. If a building has got like a rigid framework, it'll blow apart sooner mm-hmm. than one where it can like creak and move around mm-hmm. a little bit. I'm not so hopeless about the old constitution. But I mean, there are calls even on both sides of the aisle to some extent, even on the right, to call for a constitutional convention. In fact, well, in fact maybe even more so in, in some circles on the right than on well, the left. Call um, for it then. There's a procedure. I doubt we'd have people as good as the group in Philadelphia in 1787, but let's see hmm. who comes out of the woodwork. And also, they aren't the only thing. Then it has to hmm. be ratified. Well, and right. isn't that maybe one of the things that if such a thing were to occur that either side could really learn is that if you have a constitutional convention, you might learn quite a bit of your own failings in terms of the ideas that you come up with. And well, also, I mean, and the failings of your colleagues. Well, the ideas you come up with and also how successful you are because you still have more hurdles after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can come up with the greatest ideas in the world, but then they have to be ratified by X number of states. So good luck with that. And it's designed to be difficult. And there have been, you know, numbers of amendments over the years. But also there have been many, many amendments that have just uh, fallen and died by the wayside. Either they didn't get through Congress or they never got ratified. Well, there haven't been very many in the last, you know, 75 years. Uh, uh, the 27th was ratified by Congress with the rest of the Bill of Rights, you know, and mm-hmm. it took till 1992. It holds the record for the longest march into the mm-hmm. Constitution. How do you think Washington would deal with the political partisanship of today? And then the second part of the question, how do you think Lincoln would deal with contemporary political partisanship? Lincoln, maybe I'll start with him, is sort of easier to answer because his political world was more like ours than Washington's was. I think Lincoln would be fine. He had a persona. He had a shtick, which is not unlike what we see other people doing. You know, I'm just a simple person. He had a million stories. That goes very well to electorates. Then, of course, he had other things. I think he had a sadness even amounting to depression, which was also people picked up on. I mean, and certainly as the Civil War Mm -hmm. went on, people who never met him. Possibly the most dark president we've ever had. Oh, yeah. Well, and wouldn't you be <laughs> yeah. in those circumstances? Washington, 
Of course, it's a greater change, but Washington was a very politically-minded guy. The first election, this was his half-brother, was running for the House of Burgesses, and Washington was a teenager. And Washington saved the count of all the votes, and he saved it. Now, why do you save a vote count? Well, maybe you'll use it again. I mean, that is a precocious... <laughs> Wait, what do you mean use it again? I'm, because voting uh, was public. You said in public who you were voting uh, for, so you know. Uh, okay, oh, so he yeah. knows in this constituency, right. uh -huh. you know, who went for him. The first time he wins in the House of Burgesses, in those days it was illegal to treat voters to drinks, but everybody did it. It was universal. Mm, right. And we have the list of liquor that the Washington campaign bought for the voters, and it was like a quart of alcohol for everyone who voted. And Washington couldn't be there because he was involved in the French and Indian War. But we have a letter with his campaign manager, in effect, mm -hmm. and Washington's only complaint was, you didn't buy enough. <laughs> so he knew how to play this game, and it would take him a while to get up to speed and try to figure it out. And uh, I have confidence in him. You have confidence that he would have been able to navigate it. Yes. So maybe if we had better leaders, the results would be better. Well, and better voters, yeah. We don't have better leaders That's, unless we have better voters. Well, you know, it's a dance. I mean, the leaders do encourage the voters, but the voters also have to be there to support the leaders. There certainly isn't a major emphasis on being an informed voter. Well, or an informed voter and a serious voter, a voter who really takes it seriously. Richard Brookheiser, thanks for being with us, and I'm sure everyone looks forward to hearing you in a few hours. Of course, this will be that'll be after this comes out, but thanks again. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. To check out our classes and upcoming events, go to scetl at asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production services provided by Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.